Hi, everybody, and welcome to the European VC podcast. I am Andreas, and I'll be your sole host for today because David is out flying high above us all on his way back from Tech Barbecue in Copenhagen. Today, we have with us Juliet Audet, and she is a partner at Forbian, a multi-stage venture fund in Amsterdam and Munich, backing biotech companies in Europe and North America to impact the future of medicine. Forbian is investing out of two separate funds, Forbian Ventures Fund 6 and Forbian Growth Opportunities Fund 2 of 750 million euros and 600 million respectively with a total of 3 billion euro AUM and an established portfolio of 44 companies with notable investments including New Amsterdam Pharma, Gyroscope and Inflasome at Forbian. Juliet focuses on the venture strategy investing in biotech companies from preclinical stage to phase 1B and led the investments in New Amsterdam Pharma, Mestac, and Duolix, amongst others. As you can all hear, this is going to be one of the technical episodes where we're going to dive into a space that I'm not usually most well-versed in, so I'm sure I'll do many more verbial fuck-ups than this. If you're listening into the show... Do drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at eu.vc. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values, values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, 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 acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. Let's get this thing started with how you got into venture. Tell us your story. Great. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So my journey into venture was not the straightest, but I think it's the case for many. So I'm a scientist by training, but I'm a physicist, not a biologist, which actually does matter for for the work that I do. I started my career uh, in consulting. I was at McKinsey & Company. I've uh, actually very quickly uh, oriented myself towards pharma and biotech. That was mostly because this is where I could find purpose in what I was doing and I cared about uh, about that. So worked in uh, in consulting for a while and then I worked in at Novartis in strategy. And I have to say when I was in strategy, I was missing engaging with science. And so I was really interested in uh, a career that would allow me to really combine the science and the business together. I have to say I was fortunate uh, enough to have in strategy a boss that uh, I had a change of boss and then uh, I had a little bit more flexibility for a couple of months. I went to see the Novartis Venture Fund, the head of the Novartis Venture Fund, Anja Koenig, and I said, here I am. I would love to learn more about venture capital. Can I can I work with you for a couple of months and see see how it goes? And I have to say, I was also very lucky because Anya Koenig has a very similar background to mine. She's a physicist. She's also went to, to McKinsey and then she was leading the, she is still the head of the, of the Novartis Venture Fund that does only biotech investments. And so she gave me a, she gave me a chance. It has been an incredibly steep learning, learning curve when I started, which was a little bit daunting at the beginning, but also incredibly exciting. And I think this is also what I love about this job. It's, it's, I learn every day. And on the queue of learning, I'd love to ask you to tell us a bit about a pivotal moment in your career. This is not the most common uh, part I, either, but uh, I grew up and I did a 
professional ballet training until I was 18. And I was doing that in parallel next to, uh, next to school. So, uh, because my parents didn't allow me to, uh, to <laughs> not do the normal school, which I'm very grateful now for, but obviously at the time as a, you know, angsty teenager, I was, uh, I was not very happy about, yeah. but I think it taught me incredible discipline because obviously I had to manage both the normal school and then, you know, more than 30 hours of training, uh, uh per week. It, it also gave me, I think the, Learn, I learned the power of training and trying and failing and starting over uh, and learning from your mistake of what can I do differently to make it better. And then uh, actually, when I was 18, I tore my oculus tendon, so which meant that my belly care, ballet career was o- over. And uh, that happened in the last year of high school. And I had to turn things around very quickly and figure out, OK, what do I want to do? Like now that this is this part of like the path that I was on is done. Yeah what do I do? So like I had to, you know, while doing surgery and rehab and all those things, I had to find a new path and, you know, find a university, apply and then, and then go, go on my way. So I think it taught me a lot of resilience, but also the power of, of seeing new paths when yeah. one falls through. And, uh, and I think it's helpful in the startup and venture capital environment. Yeah. I imagine it's something you do on quite often when you're talking to founders about the fact that sometimes we have to fold. I, I think it's it's recognizing when it's the moment to fold. You know, sometimes in in the scientific environment, I think this is also the chance that we have that um, sometimes when the experiments don't work, you have to figure out, well, why don't they work? But then if they give you a very clear signal of like, this is non-progressible, this is, you can get very, very clear signals from uh, from the data, which I think that sometimes, you know, if you're, thinking more about tech, the tech environment, or you have a product on the market, sometimes the feedback of the market is not as direct. So which is something that I think in the, the investments that we do, that that I do, you can rely a little bit more on the science and what it tells you. We're most likely also going to talk about this, but I know it's a topic that matters a lot to you, which is training and building up newer VCs. And I'd be curious to ask you about this part specifically, is an incredibly important skill for a VC. I think the best VCs out there are also the best coaches. And and building that skill set in someone who was hired into a firm is not necessarily the easiest. But and that's of course also why it's a long path to partner and a long path to 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 the board seats and and, and leading investments where you have this responsibility mm. of of being able to work through this with empathy with the founders. I'd love to ask you how you how you think about building this type of skill set into people that doesn't necessarily have that type of experience in their, in their, in their baggage? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because especially in the field that I work at, that I work in, uh, you know, the, the profile of people we, we recruit is people that are very scientifically driven, usually PhDs, and they come here and I keep on telling them it's all about the people. This is a people's business which obviously is something that they need to reconcile with. And obviously, you know, it's all about the science as well. And we need we need to have the science in place to make an investment and to really be convinced. And this is the base for uh, for for being convinced about an investment. But then, you know, the science needs to be there. But then on top of that, we really need to uh, to understand how how do we interact with the not only with the funders, but also we usually syndicate our deals, syndicate our deals. So we have co-investors. And so, so what is the dynamic at play? And so I like to involve the junior team members early on into 
the decision-making process and how it works and, and also make them uh, understand very quickly that our role on the board is not someone where we can say, no, this is how we do it. I want, I want X to be done. And because this is all about influencing and really understanding the different perspective and how do you get to, to move a board all together because ultimately it's almost like an animal. It's a team on itself. You have to really shape it and, yeah. and really understand what is, a, what is the dynamic as a whole. So the board role in particular is, is, of course, an important one, but it's also one that until you get there, it's not always that you have the opportunity to, to, to sit on the boards. Do you tend to allow your, your, your associates and principals yeah. coming up to, to, to join us as, as uh, you know, bystanders? Uh, yeah. I think that's a really important important thing. Uh, we we try to always have an observer seat for our team members, and and this is really for for training purposes. I think you know very often you know the analysts and associates and principal are are the ones that have gone like the deepest into the science. But usually they they also bring something to the table. It's not only about learning, but that that is important. But I think the part that's also important in in my relationship as a board member and and my observer is also to help them understand what actually happens on the spot yeah, yeah. in the meeting versus what happens outside. And and ultimately, this is something that, um, you know, I, I, I was quite amazed. You know, you always see, think about the big board meetings and like important people around the big table. And then you realize that actually everything happened outside, outside of the board meeting. And then you get into the board meeting and that's where you formalize the decision. But uh, unless, you know, you really want to create. And that's oftentimes the diff difference between a functional and dysfunctional board, right? Where the things are actually being done before and, and versus after or, or during. I'm, let's, let's continue here a bit. And I'm mindful that we're blowing every script here. But but I do <laughs> think that this this board dynamic is incredibly important and and, and something that might actually be in a way be the difference between a VC startup and a non-VC startup in many ways because it's it's an incredibly valuable tool if it is used correctly and if everyone knows how to do that. Um, could you tell me a bit about your playbook, how you go about that and at what point you come in and say, okay, let's 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 actually create that board and this is how I think about it and, and so on. And and do you usually take the board chair seat so that you are the person with with more let's call it weight in terms of deciding how how to run the board versus versus uh, um, a normal board member? Yeah, I think I think that's a really important question. Um, so for us, this uh, the board composition is something that is negotiated negotiated at uh, term sheet yeah. uh, already. Yeah. So this is this is something that we already think very carefully about. What is going to be the power dynamic? Obviously, you need to reflect somewhat the shareholder structure, but it's also what people can bring to the table, what is needed for the company, and then also how is the dynamic going to going to work out? So, you know, if you if you think about specific situation of you have a very large company with a lot of board members, and then they raise only a small amount of money. You can't rehold the whole board, yeah. but at the same time, as a new board member, you still need to make sure that your voice is being heard. So how do you ensure that this mechanics actually happens? And so we usually use thresholds of, you know, for example, investor director majority, where you say, 
well, we're for investor director majority. You need to have at least three of them that agree and for any decision to be to be taken. And I think this is usually we never want. And I think this is also not good for the company. It's like you don't want anyone to have a veto. And I think that's that's the, the dynamic that we're trying to create is you need to have enough consensus, but you also don't want the veto. And so how do you how do you structure that? And how about fostering that that dynamic around the board where the majority of the work happens before the the board meeting? Because I've been in boards where it's definitely what happened between some board members and, and the founder, but not everyone. And <laughs> that can be a tough thing to to straddle. <laughs> Well, I think there's two ways it happens. Either you're the initiator of a conversation and then you can decide uh, who you want to talk to and who you don't want to talk to, which must, might be a strategy, right? Yeah. And then there's the other option where it's like someone else took the decision. They want to pass something and they've decided either to include you or not include you. Uh, and so it's always a, a fine balance and like trying to get to know on which side of the table you are. I think just getting getting to know your co-board members is something that is that is really important. At the end of the day, you're a team. And so you need to operate as a team. And so all the you know good learning and good leadership advice about team management needs to be applied also to the board. Uh, it's not just a collection of, of individuals. And so so I think the most effective way, honestly, is to pick up your phone and say, hey, have you read the board deck? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and see what's on their mind. Yeah. Could I push you to just give me like your three core messages around building an effective board? Could I quiz you on that? <laughs> yeah, no, but that, <laughs> I will. I will try it. The first one is governance. So this is this is good governance, and so this is really thinking through legally how it's enshrined into your uh, into your agreements. Because those things, when your board works well. You never go back to it, never. When everything goes wrong, this is where you absolutely need those things to be airtight. And a note on that, right, because that's what we've just gone through a period where, honestly, VC turned quite light on that. And 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 that was how you got into deals and you gave founders more more rights yeah. and so on. Yeah. And and we're seeing VCs being bit in the, bit in the back by this now, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And and so I think I always think this is this is the governance thing is actually it's always painful to uh, to to negotiate because you need to be very strict on on what it means, and so people always think oh but like what are you thinking about that it's going to go so wrong and it's like no I hope we never touch it I hope we never see it like, ever again but if we need to go back to it it needs to be our eyes yeah so governance is the first thing do you have on governance do you have any uh red lines so the the way i think about it usually is with a cap table in front of me yeah. and i look at the cap table and i just try to do any possible combination of uh investors to see when do they get to investors and shareholders and founders yeah. when do they get to the majority yeah um and i try any single possible like it's very easy to do right like you just, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just you, on your excel it's um, like uh, it's like uh my my sister's getting married, so it's like uh, putting together the <laughs> the table arrangement and and seeing how could this work out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And who's gonna fight with whom, and yes, uh, exactly. and who cannot be sitting together? Like exactly yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, I think I think that's the that's the governance part. Then the second part, I would say, 
get to know get to know your board members. So I think I think you know at the full try to be there for board dinners and and so on. And I know as VCs you 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 tend to sit on a lot of boards. And so having all those board dinners like that come in and they all come like it's board season at the moment and we all have like two or three board meetings a week and it's it's exhausting. Yeah. But trying to be there and getting to know the people behind the board member is is always helpful because then you can pick up your phone very easily and be like, hey, what happened? Or what is happening? Or what do you want? So I think it's it's really trying to create that relationship. What are your views on virtual board meetings? Keeping that in mind. So I think that yeah, I I I still want to do uh, virtual board meetings. I think you know if this is one thing that the pandemic, but the positive that the pandemic has brought is that we can do a lot of our our business remotely. It's it's more effective in the sense of of time spent. You get the you you get the full team around the table in an easy in a in an easier way. It's also better for the environment because we're not crazy flying. But the other the other part is that there is so much that you can get to know someone just over video. So so I think usually the way that actually we write it in our investment documents that we want at least we usually ask for five board meetings at like you know roughly five board meetings a year and we ask for two to be in person. Yeah. So. It's still majority virtual, but uh, some companies, depending on where they are, where the investors are, sometimes it's easier. So we do it in yeah. person a little bit more often. And then we try to ask people that for those board meetings, everybody shows up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So first one was governance. Second is get to know your board members. Do you have a third one for me? I'm going to say it's it's a little bit obvious, but I'm going to say preparation. Read read your board deck and uh, and and it's... You'd be surprised sometimes with people who ask questions and you're like, that was in the board deck, like two pages down. So yes, it has not been pre presented yet, but people get really angsty about something. It might be a, li a little bit obvious, but I think preparation is is everything. And and it also means usually that you can get the founders and the and the team, the operating team, the management, very much on your side because you've done your your homework. You're here. You're here to ultimately provide value and so you've you've taken up your responsibility to do that i respect that a lot and uh, i having been an ea for at a point in my life that was a very bad feeling sitting there knowing how much you battled over the deck before and getting everyone in the company involved in making sure that we we had it or in the senior leadership to make sure that everything is as it should be and then you can just see fuck this guy didn't read it and now he's going to go on the rant that he usually does <laughs> so all right let's let's get into the next section which is our take a stance round take a stop all right juliet now i will ask you to comment on this quote from sabina visander from Grandom, which reads i think vcs add way less value than they think they do. They're less pivotal to the businesses they're advising. <laughs> this quote makes me chuckle. I think it's the it's the dirty little secret of VC. <laughs> so I wouldn't I, I actually wouldn't say it's like way less, but I think it's different. I think VCs are an essential part of the uh, innovation ecosystem and they provide very much needed risk capital that is not available otherwise. 
So I think that the, the strengths of the VCs on board and for entrepreneurs is, is, is twofold, is network. And because we see a lot of people, we see a lot of companies and so on. And the other part of it is, is also um, a byproduct of the, of the number of companies that we see is what does the market look like? What, the, what, what is the visibility? We see a lot of company, we have benchmarks, we, we see all the different elements of a company building process. And so we've seen a lot of things work. And so we do have the strategic perspective on things that, oh, we've seen this like five times has been, has been used and three out of those five times it worked really well because the, the CEO did X, Y, Z. But then what, if you don't do Z, then it falls through. And so sharing those perspectives is, is something that is very, very helpful, like providing this external perspective. I think that's a, that's definitely a helpful. I think that's our role as VC is one of, of breadth and not necessarily ones of depth. We, what we bring to the table is is rarely, and, and I say rarely because some people are absolute experts and some VCs are absolute experts into, into certain areas. But fundamentally, and I'm going to speak about the, the biotech VC environment, it's like, you know, so, so I could have done a PhD on like a very specific part of oncology, and then I'm going to be doing investment in an epilepsy company. I still need to learn about that. There's a lot of things that are transferable, but so, so I cannot be both an oncology and an epilepsy uh, uh, expert. So, you know, I think... Our strength is also to bring that uh, epilepsy expert to the table and help, you know, develop the company. So, yeah, the court made me chuckle. <laughs> nah, I think we all laugh a little bit when we see that. All right, Juliet, now I want to get into our deep dive section. And I am looking forward to be talking to you about exit strategies in biotech, because this is quite different from what we have in the rest of the VC market. Yeah. And I am a complete newbie here. I've never been in this space. So so tread lightly when <laughs> when when I ask stupid questions, and, but but take us into it. Tell us what's happening right now in the market and, and what are the dynamics that you should think about when you're doing something in this space? Absolutely, and no stupid question. We learn every day, right? That's, the, that's what we like. <laughs> so I think, a biotech company inherently is, is an animal that is very different from what we, we know from the biotech VC uh, uh, in general. So a biotech company is a company that uh, for a really long time is going to spend a lot of money, a lot. <laughs> so several millions that are going to be spent. And usually the company will never see the day of profit. I mean, we've seen that, you know, uh, Uber and Airbnb just turned a profit. So, so finally, it takes a long time for them as well. But it's doable. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But the, the way that it works is that usually a biotech, VCs will exit the biotech company before it turns any profit. And then the other part of it that is quite different, I think, from the from from you know more tech or product oriented portfolio companies, is that we have very binary moments in the drug development. So it's you do all your safety studies, and if they're not clean, they're not clean. Your your asset is dead, and it's it's over. You, I mean, you don't want to bring it forward yeah. in any case, like ethically and all the things, but it's over. So. So you, you put a lot of capital to risk with a lot of moments that are very binary. And so the exit landscape that we have usually is big pharma saying, 
I like this asset. I think it's interesting for my pipeline. So I'm going to, I'm going to go buy this company. That is usually what you want. And so, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk in the biotech VC uh, uh, space where people are, are saying, oh, we've exited, we've gone public. And I'm like, well, but you haven't exited, actually. You're <laughs> still in the company. And now, yes, you can exit slowly, but you can't dump all your shares onto the market at once okay. because obviously you're going <laughs> to, some people are going to be very angry on the what, <laughs> you do, what you do with the share price. And so I think that, you know, part of our due diligence process is also trying to really understand what is happening in big pharma, trying to understand what are the therapeutic areas that they're interested in? Like, are they more interested in oncology or are they more interested in immunology or are they more interested in rare diseases? And then within each of those, like, what are what is specifically something that they're looking for that they don't have internally that they're going to have to buy externally? And so that is really part of our process. So we talk to a lot of pharma BD during our, our due diligence process. That is usually how it works. Something that has been happening recently is, is quite an interesting uh, dynamic because pharma has several hundreds of billion of capital available for acquisition. Um, so their war chests are full. The other part of it is pharma. I think I was reading a, um, a statistic recently that 42% of the revenues of last year for big pharma came from assets that will uh, have a patent cliff within six years. So that means uh, uh, that, you know, their revenues are going to go down. Like, And so that's coming. And so they, they have a lot of money and they need a lot of source of revenue for the, for the next couple of years. But at the same time, they well, want could, something. Could I ask you the dynamic behind that inflection point or whatever you call it in industry or... or, or sudden maturation of the uh, yeah. of, of the patents because I guess that would speak to the fact that there's been a period in time where there was less innovation and for that reason there weren't any or many new blockbuster drugs coming out in that period yeah so so I think it's uh, um, it's not that the the innovation has has continued throughout but then then you know a number of things fall and so so I think what has happened to be honest is, um, that pharma has not invested enough in, you know, filling that that uh, that pipeline, and maybe, you know, things were going great. They were selling a lot of their drugs, and so there was less pool to uh, to actually get something through the pipeline because it was all great. And so I think maybe now it's like getting to the point that they really need to do it because six years is soon. Does that then mean, Juliet, that you're seeing because war chest full? We're seeing that they're going to have a problem down the line. Are they very attentive to that and trying to course correct? And for that reason, you would argue that we're really seeing a boom in, in biotech? So not yet. I would like no. to see it. You're waiting for it. You're waiting for it. That's what you're telling LPs. I'm, 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 saying, I'm saying exactly. I'm saying, I'm saying that they have all the, you know, everything is aligned yeah, all their, for all the to actually, to actually yeah. execute on that. Yeah, yeah. They have the money and they need it. What else do you yeah. want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but so there has been a slump in uh, in the M&A, you know, with the whole market going down. And, and so there has been a slump in the M&A uh, uh, activity uh, as well as in the broader uh, environment. But in, in pharma biotech, there has been a, a slump. We're seeing a little bit of a pickup in 2023. We're, see, we're seeing that it's yeah. starting to pick up. But I think it's becoming more and more of a conversation and also 
you know, when you hear analysts on the street talking about those big pharma, they're also talking about that. When are you going to buy it? What are you going to buy? What is your strategy for acquisition and so on? So there's a push from the market. So I'm hoping it's going to translate, but it hasn't really fully translated yet. But the, the interesting part is that because the, the patent cliff and the fall of revenues is so close in time, the big pharma are looking for later stage assets. Yeah, so they're looking for stuff that will will be ready to go out in six years. Exactly. And that is new. That is new. And so that means that, you know, biotech, uh, big pharma in the past has been also like uh, more amenable to, oh, this is really interesting. This has not gone into human, but we like the target. The compound looks good. We're going to buy that. But that still means that you have to go through phase one, phase two, phase three. And, you know, that's several years of development, depending on the, the indication. But, you know, five to 10 years of development. We said in the beginning, and now I'm going to show that I'm a novice here. Uh, we said in the beginning that you are focused on the preclinical stage to phase 1B. Yes. How does that translate to what we just spoke about? So this is still pretty early. So very quickly, preclinical is everything that we test in a test tube and then in um, in mice and then, and then monkeys usually. And then there's phase 1, phase 2, phase 3. Phase 1, we try... That's a very big picture. Phase one, we we test the drug into healthy people to just see if that make sure that it's safe. Small number of healthy people. Then phase two is small number of people with the disease to make sure still that it's safe, but also that it works in the disease. And phase three is you actually do it in a large number of people, make sure that it's statistically true. The signal that you've seen in phase two is statistically true. And then you get FDA approval. So and in between you have FDA interactions or EMA in Europe, EMA interactions uh, between each of those steps. And if we had had David on this call, he could have schooled us in that as well, because he's been very <laughs> much into that. I, I, on the other hand, know nothing. Um, okay, but then I'm curious to understand, because another thing which is is, is interesting about the, 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 um, the biotech space, which is CVCs are not as in normal VC, I wouldn't say frowned upon, but not always looked at, at with the same eyes as you would a, a purely private VC. But that is actually a bit flipped in in, in biotech, right? Because CVCs carry a very strong relate, uh, reputation because they're also the acquirer in the end. Um, so could you tell me a bit about the dynamic between CVCs and, and, and purebred VCs? Yeah, 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 institutional investors. So, I mean, I, I was at both. So um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to be at the Novartis Venture Fund and now at Forbian, we're an institutional fund. So there's, there's, I would say, two branches of CVCs in biotech, some that are fully financially driven and actually the Novartis uh, Venture Fund is fully financially driven. But then uh, you have the fully strategically aligned uh, CVC. So there's, there's a number of, uh, of those that basically take whatever the strategy of the company is, so let's say Pfizer, and they say they want to invest in those three areas, and they're going to be looking at something that complements uh, what is already done within the company. So some CVC actually look, look at complementarity, some look at what is the space that we're not investing in and that we should be, and so we have at least a little bit of a step of a foot in it. Uh, that's different strategy within it, but it's always linked to the strategy of the mother company. And so I would say usually, you know, for, for me as a co-investor of, of uh, I, I'm co-invested with a number of, uh, of uh, corporate venture funds, usually 
you know, the type of people and the type of knowledge that they bring is is very similar. And so it's it's a high expertise uh, uh, environment. The really good thing that they bring as well is is connection within the within the organization. And so you can leverage on scientists, you can leverage obviously within the bounds of like confidentialities and making yeah, sure yeah. that, you know, yeah. Stuff doesn't leak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all Man, that's exactly that's exactly why I did the tie into exit strategies, yeah. right? Because yeah. I imagine getting them in already at phase one B is incredibly valuable because you know that you have then the eyes of the behemoth that might be an yes. acquirer. In the yes. Future. That being said, not a lot of a uh, surprisingly. Uh, I, I don't know the stats exactly. Uh, but, you haven't uh, seen but, too but, many but, actual actually buying by uh, by the one that. So you know, sometimes you might have like. The Sanofi Ventures that is uh, that is invested in uh, in a company, and then you know Pfizer buys it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but but yeah, I I do think it brings also a lot of the pharma perspective that we need also to understand how pharma thinks about this indication, this application, this patient yeah. population, and so on. So that, so they bring a lot of things around the around the table, in addition to bringing capital, which we we do as well, obviously. Okay, so now I will let you just give us a very short description or, or pro biotech course here before we go into the shout out section, because this is what, what many don't know, I think is biotech is actually oftentimes outperforming normal VC. And that's often because even though it's very binary, it is in many ways a bit more, you've got a clear playbook for pharma. And if you know, or biotech, and if you know how to run that, and what to read, then then it is in a way slightly more predictable than than okay, we're gonna do a tier <laughs> tier scooter <laughs> company and gonna maybe get everyone to ride scooters around around the cities of Europe. No, that's uh, that that's fair. I I wish I could say that also to my LPs. It's like we're totally predictable. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the eyes that uh, that behold, right? <laughs> Obviously, no. But I think I think. As we were mentioning at the beginning of the conversation, is we're basing the investment on a, a relatively limited number of events. You know, it's it's based on the science of is it working uh, versus you know launching uh, micro mobility things. Also depends on the demand, and maybe in one city is going to work, and another city is not going to work. So it really depends on the market that you have and the pool that you have versus product that we're selling here is a very contained one that has also a lot of regulatory framework around it, which is a regulatory framework to actually get it to the patient, a regulatory framework to prescribe it to the patient, and another regulatory framework to actually pay for it. So there, there's a lot of, I would say, guardrail for, for yeah. the product around it. Okay, now let's head into the shout out section. Now, Juliet, I would love to ask you to give a shout out to co-investor Angel or LP for just simply being awesome. And do also share us the story behind that. I will. So the person I, I find awesome is Julie Grant from Canon. I actually met Julie on the, on the, we were conducting due diligence on the company together. And I would say, you know, as most people in the industry, she has a very strong scientific background, but Julie not only brought this with a lot of humility to the table, but also she's someone that doesn't leave any stone unturned and will not hesitate to bring expertise in and is always always ready to evaluate new information, opinions, approaches. And I think 
ultimately she brings all this with incredible presence she's very calm firm but at the same time she's joyful and warm i want to know her secrets I love that. <laughs> and I think it's almost the first time that we have someone on the pod not screaming out the glories of one of their LPs. So thank you for bringing in the Cohen Master. <laughs> we have great LPs as well. <laughs> Now let's get into the three biggest learnings of your life. And I just want to give it to you like this. Tell me what are the most important things that you've learned for the last 10 years? I think what I'm going to say is not is not going to surprise you. I've said it already. One, it's all about the people, all about the people. It's in the teams that you choose to work with in your portfolio, on the board, or in the in the VC that you're working in. Then the second one is it's all about the balance. You won't be fulfilled by having only work in your fa in your life. And so you know, find your hobby, your family. Be be curious. Be open to opportunities, and also bring those external things into into your work. And the last one I will say, it's all about not confusing confidence for competence. Like don't be confused and don't confuse people. <laughs> I like I like the last one. So you say you, you really think that we should be fulfilled and I hear that from many. And then they say, let's, let's, let's focus on hobbies and family. Let me ask you, what is then your main pastime activity that takes you out of VC? Well, it takes me out of VC. Is I, I was going to say skiing, but but funnily enough, skiing is the golfing for uh, for for VCs. It's actually quite incredible. Like <laughs> it's like I've never skied as much with VC, with VC colleagues as, as I've done any other sports. So it's actually quite funny. <laughs> See, I think it's skiing or surfing. Uh, surfing, especially during the Web 3 hypes. Maybe that's the difference between the tech VC and the biotech VC. I think biotech VCs, they ski. Like, trust me, yeah. they ski. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now let's head into the quick fire round. And now, the quick fire round. Juliet, what advice would you give to your own 10-year younger self? Yeah, I think I would say be very intentional about your wants, what you want to achieve, how you want to live your life. So intentionality. And what are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are fundraising? Get to know your LPs. That's uh, and give them a shout out on a on a podcast, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I think it's really important to understand what success looks like for them and how how can you help them achieve it. Once you can answer those questions, like you will be on the right track to to for fundraising. And finally, what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started Inventure? I think it's so, you know, in a very scientifically driven background, like even in that investment area, uh, there's still a lot of judgment and subjectivity that goes into assessing companies and choosing your investments. So so it's it's still more an art than a science, even in a scientifically driven one. Thank you so much for joining us, Juliet, and to everyone listening in, Thank you so much for always being here. And if you enjoyed this episode, do drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at eu.vc. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values, of values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. response.
Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting.